This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofaleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of a Left podcast with clips today from Jim Hightower, the Tom Hartman Program, Democracy Now!, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Primary Concerns from the New Republic, and The Majority Report. Well... I did not expect this. The National Republican Party has published an official policy document showing that the GOP really might be more than a gaggle of serve-the-rich plutocrats and wacky, trumped-up right-wingers. Just when you thought the party was consuming itself in the know-nothingism of its presidential pretenders and the recalcitrant do-nothingism of its Congress critters, out comes a sign of sanity. In this 18-page manifesto, the party proclaims that, quote, our government was created by the people for all the people, and it must serve no less a purpose. All the people. Forget pontifications by Wall Street billionaires dividing America into virtuous creators, like themselves, and worthless moochers, like you and me. This document abounds with commitments to the common good. Quote, America does not prosper, it proudly proclaims on page 3 unless all Americans prosper. Wow, that's downright democratic. And how's this for a complete turnaround? Labor is the United States. The men and women who, with their minds, their hearts, and hands, create the wealth that is shared in this country, they are America. Holy Koch brothers share the wealth? Yes, and how about this? The protection of the right of workers to organize into unions and to bargain collectively is the firm and permanent policy of the Republican Party. Eat your heart out, Scott Walker, and you other labor-bashing GOP governors. The document also supports our public postal service, the United Nations, equal rights for women, expanding our national parks, vigorous enforcement of antitrust laws, and raising the minimum wage. New enlightenment in the grand old party. Hallelujah. This is Jim Hightower saying, can all this be true? Believe it or not, yes it is, except it's not new. This document is the Republican Party platform of 1956. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. Adrift in a world of my own. I play the game, but to my real shame, you've left me to dream all alone. Here's the reality. The last Republican who was legitimately elected as president of the United States by a majority of the people of this country without fraud was Dwight Eisenhower. In 1968, Richard Nixon and and, Shane, thank you. Get, Get my LBJ clip for me. In 1968. Lyndon Johnson was getting beat up really badly because we all hated the Vietnam War, and he negotiated an end to the Vietnam War in 68. And the Vietnamese had agreed to it, both North and South. And Nixon learned about this, and of course this was going to help, you know, the vice president in 1968 was Hubert Humphrey, and he was running for president in 68 against Richard Nixon. And when Nixon found out that, you know, they were going to announce in October of 68 that they had ended the Vietnam War, which would guarantee that Hubert Humphrey would become president. He was already very popular. The Democrats were very popular. 
And if they ended the war, bang, that would be it. Nixon got his people to go to Madame Two and the, and, the, and the crowd in South Vietnam and say, don't end the war. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make you rich. We'll give you more. And Lyndon Johnson was told about this by the CIA. And just three or four years ago, the Johnson Library finally decided that enough people were dead that, he, that they released the tape, which I'm going to play for you, where Richard Nixon calls up Everett Dirksen, the, leads, the, 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 the most senior Republican in the United States Senate, the guy the, Dirksen Everett, the Everett Dirksen Senate office building is named after, called up Everett Dirksen and said, this is treason, Everett, what he's doing. I, I, I know what's going on. The CIA told me. I'm reading their hand. I don't want it to get in the election. I don't want the American people to know. They would lose confidence in our electoral process. And Well, here's the, here's the clip. Here's the latest latest uh, information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just they just talked to the boss in New Mexico, and that he says that you must hold out, just hold on until after the election. We know what you is saying to them out there. Yeah, we're pretty well informed on both ends. Now I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. I know. This is treason. Richard Nixon is committing treason. I know. So you know. So that's sixty-eight Nixon. Seventy-two Nixon gets reelected, saying he's got a secret plan to end the war. He didn't. It was a lie. So Nixon, illegitimate president. Jerry Ford was just vice president. He was never elected, which then then we get Jimmy Carter, who was legitimately elected. And then in 1980, uh, uh, the campaign manager for the for the Ronald Reagan campaign contacted the Ayatollah and or the Ayatollah's representatives and said, you know, you guys, you know, you these students of yours snatched, you know, took over the U.S. embassy. Hang on to those hostages until after the election and we will start shipping you spare parts for your american-made military that we had provided to the shah and in october in august of 1980 uh president bonnie Sauter, mr bonnie Sauter, ran for president of iran on the platform of releasing the hostages he won 74 percent of the vote he became president or maybe it was prime minister whichever it is he became you know he became the head of government and and he went to the Ayatollahs and he said, time to release the hostages. And they said, we're already getting spare tires for our F-15s through Israel as part of this deal we cut with the Reagan campaign. They were already delivering them before the election. And for the following six years, we continued to sell illegally against our own embargo. We continued to sell weapons to Iran as a thank you for putting Ronald Reagan into power. So Reagan was elected as a result of treason. And and Jimmy Carter has all but acknowledged that. And and Bonnie Sauter wrote an op-ed about this uh, two years ago in the in the, uh, the Christian Science Monitor. You can still read it online. So Reagan was not legitimately elected, which means his vice president George Herbert Walker Bush was not legitimately elected because he didn't, you know, he shouldn't have been in office in the first place as vice president. Which brings us to George W. Bush, who we learned a year after the election actually lost Florida. But the vote, the recount of the vote was stopped by the U.S. Supreme Court, by Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the, the guy arguing the case before the Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court was coached by the former clerk to Rehnquist, who was the chief justice at the time, a fellow by the name of John Roberts. John Roberts coached him. He knew exactly how to make this pitch to Rehnquist. Rehnquist took the bait, 
shut down the recount in Florida, even though the Florida Supreme Court had ordered it. There is no constitutional basis to stop a state from counting a vote. But John Roberts did it. And he and or John Roberts, you know, the argument prevailed. And Roberts was rewarded by George W. Bush with chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. But not a single legitimate Republican president since Eisenhower. Similarly, the Democrats got, you know, what, five million more votes in the last election for the House of Representatives than the Republicans did. But because they've gerrymandered districts, the Republicans control the House. It's a scam. This year's election season is set to be the most expensive ever, with some estimates topping $10 billion. Three groups will each spend about a billion dollars on behalf of a presidential nominee. The first two are who you'd expect, Democrats and Republicans, the country's dominant political parties. But the third group is not a political party and does not have a single candidate running for office. Instead, it's a network of right-wing advocacy groups backed by the billionaire energy tycoons Charles and David Koch. According to its own estimates, the Koch network aims to spend nearly $900 million in the 2016 presidential and congressional races, more than doubling its, uh, its amount in 2012. The Koch's political machine now eclipses the official Republican Party in key areas, with about three and a half times as many employees as the Republican National Committee. Charles and David Koch's 2016 spending comes as part of an effort to funnel hundreds of millions of dollars to conservative candidates and causes over the last four decades. Their net worth is a combined $82 billion, placing them fifth on the Forbes 400 list of wealthiest Americans. The Koch's, the Koch's political operations have exploded in the six years since the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which removed limits on campaign spending by ruling that donor money is a form of free speech. Citizens United has allowed the Kochs and others to spend millions in dark money, political donations where the sources kept secret. The story of the Koch brothers and an allied group of billionaire donors is told in a new book by The New Yorker magazine reporter Jane Mayer. It's called Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. Jane Mayer traces how the Kochs and other billionaires, including Mellon Banking and Gulf Oil Air, Richard Mellon Scaife, chemical tycoon John M. Olin, electronics magnates Harry and Lynn Bradley, have leveraged their business empires to create a political machine with unprecedented influence over politics at the national, state and local level. Beyond elections, these billionaires have also influenced the political sphere by using their money to create right-wing think tanks, endow university positions, fund research favorable to their right-wing agenda, including climate change denial, opposing health care reform, and thwarting government regulation. The Koch's political empire is so vast it's been dubbed the Cochtopus, the organizations including Americans for Prosperity, Citizens for a Sound Economy. Mayer's book contains a number of revelations and new details. She begins with the Koch's father, industrialist Fred Koch. Mayer reveals that Fred Koch helped build an oil refinery in Nazi Germany, a project approved personally by Adolf Hitler. The refinery was critical to the Nazi war effort. Its oil fueled German warplanes. Before that, Fred Koch built a refinery 
Secretary for Joseph Stalin's Russia. Fred Koch went on to become an original leader of the right-wing John Birch Society. Charles Koch was a member when the group campaigned against the civil rights movement in the 60s. Jay Mayer also uncovers evidence confirming rumors the Koch brothers tried to blackmail their own brother, Frederick, into giving up his share of the family company by threatening to out him as gay. It also emerges that the EPA has named the Koch's company, Coke Industries, the single biggest U.S. producer of toxic waste. Mayer recounts her own potential brush with the Koch's empire after she profiled the brothers in a 2010 piece for The New Yorker. A private firm was hired to discredit her reporting. Although there's no definite proof, Mayer says that clues leading back to the Kochs were everywhere. And she explores the Kochs' multi-year effort to undermine President Obama, starting with a secretive meeting of right-wing donors the week of his inauguration. Jane Mayer joins us now, a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Again, her book is called Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great, great to, to have be you, Great to be with Jane. you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, let's start with this explosive revelation about— um, the Koch brothers' father, Fred Koch, talk about uh, his um, his business and his involvement with Nazi Germany. Well, uh, he uh, built what became the third largest refinery in Germany during the the, the build up to World War Two, and it was a refinery that, from the start, was meant to help the military effort of the the Third Reich. Um, it was clear that that. Uh, uh, Hitler was looking for ways to refine their own oil so that they could um, fuel the war machine that he was building up at that point. The refinery um, was begun, uh, the contract was begun in 34, uh, that is 1934, and was finished in 1935. And one of the things that that the father Koch was especially good at, he was a, a, apparently a brilliant engineer himself, was refining oil in a really um, high-octane fuel that would be good for the Luftwaffe, for the, uh, the warplanes. It had to be done in a special way. Jane, interestingly, the Kochs are obviously are critical of your work, but they only actually responded to two of the <laughs> allegations in the book. And earlier this month, they released a statement specifically on uh, on this uh, on this area. They say Mayer falsely implies that Fred Koch was working to aid and abet Germany's tyrannical regime during World War II, and further implies that two of his sons, Charles and David Koch, would somehow share these fictional sympathies. It, it is a sad commentary on today's media environment that we have to respond to such irresponsible and reckless attacks. They claim that many companies like Ford and, and General Electric and others also were involved in Germany before the war. Well, there were other American companies that worked there, too. Ford especially has been then singled out. It's true, though, what they're saying. If facts are facts, they've basically confirmed their father built the refinery. He designed the cracking unit, which is what refined the fuel. And that became a key asset for the Nazi war and machine. Was, so, also, one of the things is you note in, uh, in, your, in your book that this is the part of the biography of the father that's not included in official well, company accounts. this is the accounts. thing. I mean, it's not to say, and what they're kind of knocking down is a straw dog. The, the book does not say that, the, that Fred Koch or the sons were Nazis. And that would be a ridiculous statement. To, it, it says specifically, Fred Koch's views of the Nazis are unknown. But he worked with them. He made money from them. And um, and he, this chapter was kept hidden from the Coke industry's history that's up online. Why it, was Hitler? Of, 
one of many secrets about the Kochs. I mean, the truth is, this book's, it, it grew out of a 2010 story I did for The New Yorker, which turned out to be just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that was not known. It took, it took five years to document all of this. Why was Hitler personally involved with approving this refinery? Well, his underlings were not going to approve it, and there was a, the partner in this is a man named William Rhodes Davis, who was working with Fred Koch. He was a Nazi sympathizer. The U.S. considered him a Nazi, uh, agent, actually. And he was the partner in this project, and he needed an okay from Hitler. And to get it, he had to go speak with Hitler himself. Hitler green-lighted the project. You, it was—and um, then, then gave him an autographed copy of Mein Kampf. <laughs> and then you talk about the governess that Fred Koch hired to raise the children. Right. So, for, actually, Fred Koch was back and forth to Germany a lot. One of the things that—he that almost went on the Hindenburg, if people, and, and he was at the last minute detained, the dirigible that blew up in New Jersey in, in, you know, the pre, right before the war started. Um, he, um, he imported, um, or, or somehow the family wound up with a German— um, nanny who brought up the two oldest boys, Frederick and Charles, Charles, who's, who's known today as one of the two Koch brothers. Um, and the nanny herself was a Nazi sympathizer of such fervor that when Hitler invaded France in 1940, she'd been with the Koch family for five years, but she said she needed to leave. She wanted to go back to be with the Fuhrer to celebrate. It was strange. It was a, we a strange, it, you know, it's a fascinating family. It was a strange upbringing. It's, I'm, I, they, they, I'm not saying that they were Nazis, but what I am saying is that, um, this family was politically from the start filled with very strange influences. And Fred Koch's involvement in the founding of the John Birch Society and what that is? Well, so what happens is the father then also worked for Stalin and um, built the oil refineries there in Stalin's first five-year plan. And, and he comes back to the U.S. and he's horrified by what he's seen of Stalin. And he becomes a, just an absolutely um, a sort of vitriolic anti-communist. And that leads to him being a founding member of the John Birch Society. And he passes those views on to his sons. And both uh, David Koch and Charles Koch, the two that are known as the Koch brothers, were members of the John Birch Society, which was kind of defined the anti-communist right-wing fringe in America in the 50s, 60s. Oh, we're meeting at the courthouse at 8 o'clock tonight. You just come in the door and take the first turn to the right. Be careful when you get there, we'd hate to be bereft. But we're taking down the names of everybody turning left. Oh, we're the John Birch Society, the John Birch Society. Here to save our country from a communistic plot. Join the John Birch Society, help us fill the ranks. To get this movement started, we need lots of tools and cranks. Now there's no one that we're certain the Kremlin doesn't touch. We think that Westbrook Hegler doth protest a bit too much. We only hail the hero from whom we got our name. We're not sure what he did, but he's our hero just the same. Oh, we're the John Birch Society, the John Birch Society. Socialism is the ism dismalest of all. Join the John Birch Society, there's so much to do. Have you heard they're serving vodka at the WCTU? Many Americans seem to feel that the United States is a Christian nation. Now, you might wonder, how is this a topic for a program called Economic Update? And the answer is, as your questions show you understand, that Christian nation for these folks seems to also mean 
that you love capitalism, that our economic system is somehow uniquely Christian, and that Christians should be pro-capitalist and people who like capitalism should be Christians, or something that makes these two together. And here's the, the, the questioner's blunt point. I don't feel that way. I, says this writer, I am a devout Christian, but I don't think capitalism embodies Christian values. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. I think the capitalist celebration of making money supports greed and exploitation, which for me are precisely the things that a Christian commitment puts you against, not for. Would you comment? Well, I could talk a long time, longer than you would want to listen to me, about this topic since it's so important in American history. But I'm not going to respond that way. I'm actually going to respond by giving you a mini book review. Because a book has been published that I want to bring to your attention that explains a great deal about what this question uh, talks about. The author is Kevin Cruz, K-R-U-S-E, Kevin M. Cruz. And he wrote a book published by Princeton University Press, an interesting title, How Business Made Us Christian. And here's what he does. He shows that Americans, who have been Christian a long time in large numbers, have been very mixed and, dif and differentiated one from the other when it comes to capitalism. It is not true that this country was Christian in the sense of being pro-capitalist all its life, not at all. What he points out, and he does a stunning job of this, is that after World War II, many people in the business community, the big business community, he mentions Harvey Firestone of the tire company, Conrad Hilton of the hotel company, uh, Fred Maytag, I don't have to tell you what company that is, Henry Luce of Time Magazine, leaders at U.S. Steel, General Motors, DuPont, and so on were terribly concerned that in the 1930s and 40s, the Roosevelt New Deal had emerged, whose idea was you should tax corporations and the rich to help the mass of people in the middle class and thereby create the middle class. And they were very concerned because they didn't like paying those taxes. They didn't like any of this. But they didn't know how to win people over. Remember, the mass of Americans clearly loved the idea of taxing corporations and the rich. You know how we know that? Because the one president who really did that, Franklin Roosevelt, was reelected four times overwhelmingly in this country. He was the most popular president the United States had ever had. No president ever came close to being reelected four times. It was so overwhelming that after he died, the Republicans pushed through in the Congress the law that limits presidents to two terms so they wouldn't have to face this again. That was Professor Cruz's point in his book. Business decided they had to make a mass base for pro-capitalism, pro-big business. And the way to do that was to make common cause with Christian fundamentalism. And he demonstrates the important role played by three ministers in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. James Fifield was one and takes us through the whole business like that. The second one was Abraham Veride, if I can pronounce his name correctly. And the third one is a name I think most of you know, Billy Graham. 
and he tracks through how the business community approached them, worked with them in order to develop the idea that being a Christian means celebrating and endorsing the economic system we have and excludes people like the person who wrote to me who says he is a Christian but does not find cap capitalism to be part of that faith for him. Joining me from Hartford, Connecticut, is Jelani Cobb, a historian at the University of Connecticut and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Jelani, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for inviting me. In one of your recent columns for The New Yorker, you write that while Trump's explicit slogan is Make America Great Again, you write, quote, The implicit one, increasingly difficult to avoid as the campaign winds closer to the nomination, is a masterstroke of racial populism. White lives matter. So I guess my first question is what connection do you draw between the emergence and maturation of the Black Lives Matter movement and the success of Trump's campaign? Mm -hmm. Well, it's really interesting. I see them as distinct propositions. Uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement came out of an actual disparity uh, in the valuation of people's lives that, you know, looking at African-Americans and the ways in which people have met unfortunate deaths and have been implicated with law enforcement, uh, many of them unarmed and the ability of the society to just shrug in the face of that. And so Black Lives Matter was a very economical way of pointing to um, a much broader slate of social problems. And when I was saying White Lives Matter as a product of what Donald Trump is really, is really by the most honest version of what Donald Trump is articulating, I wasn't saying that there was a similar kind of circumstance or that it was a parallel movement. Uh, but it was a movement among people who feel that they have been devalued. And that is a very powerful force in American politics and has been uh, historically for a really long time. So I, I, I feel like we should distinguish here then between Donald Trump as the avatar for a group of white Americans who feel disaffected by the political system and by the economy and Trump as an avatar for a subset of those people who are reacting to the emergence of not just Black Lives Matter as a movement, but the rising American electorate in general, the dawning of uh, the majority minority America. If there's if there's sort of two stories here, how does Trump's campaign look different if in the last three or four years we hadn't had such a vibrant social activist movement like Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. Well, see, the thing is, I think it's hard to separate those two things because, uh, I mean, they are distinct things, but historically people have conflated and confused them. And so, uh, you know, one of the more notable aspects of you know, resistance, one of the arguments you heard articulated with some frequency uh, during the debate over the 1964 Civil Rights Act was the idea uh, among white Southerners that black people were being singled out to get, quote unquote, special protections. 
Uh, and that was, uh, you know, argued consistently. And so the idea that people had been singled out for special discrimination that then warranted those special protections was something that was lost on very many people. So there is that dynamic of it, the people who are responding to the specific dynamics of um, Black Lives Matter and the attempt to articulate, uh, you know, a claim on American citizenship and the Constitution uh, in ways that recall the civil rights movement. And we've seen that uh, most notably, most vividly coming out of the Ferguson moment that you know began almost two years ago now. And so that, I think, that's one dynamic. And the other is the real economic malaise, uh, the lingering effects of the uh, housing uh, crisis from 2007 on, um, the declining uh, real value of people's wages and wage stagnation and all the articulation, the ideas we heard articulated by the Occupy movement and now most notably on the liberal side or progressive side in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I think that, you know, one of the notable things about American history is that populism, uh, as I was saying in the piece, populism typically has evolved in response to economic difficulty. And that's something that we don't really, that's not really a revelation to anyone. But it has also had a kind of... um concomitant relationship with the idea of racial progress. So it was not simply the fact that there is, you know, economic difficulty that a wide swath of, you know, white Americans, working class white Americans are feeling, but that that difficulty happens in the context of a changing uh, demography in the society and also in the context of, uh, you know, the most visible element of that change being the, the occupant, the current occupant of uh, the White House. If if what you're saying, to some extent, is that populism begets populism, that activism begets counteractivism, mm-hmm. then I guess it's probably inevitable that there, that some kind of white backlash to the current political moment, um, represented by President Obama's election, the Black Lives Matter movement, the the coming majority minority state, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was inevitable. Is is it better or worse, healthier or more harmful to have that backlash manifest in a campaign as as big and loud and unconstrained as the one Trump is is leading? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's better or worse. I almost think that it was inevitable, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because uh, we are seeing the stripping away of a particular kind of culture of euphemism, uh, whereas right. people have been talking about these things for a very long time and. Just recently, uh, yesterday, I think, or the day before, there was an article that came out about how the Nixon administration really had every intention of criminalizing uh, black America and the anti-war left with the war on drugs. Uh, but the war on drugs in itself was a euphemism for what they were really declaring war on. And so I think that uh, at the very least, you know, we can now look at what um, is happening in this country and say uh, they are who we thought we <laughs> they are who we thought they were. Uh, because it's no longer uh, couched in code words or uh, euphemisms, uh, and we're not using kind of metaphorical allusions. We're talking very specifically about the um, reptilian reflex level of contempt that is animating a a large part of the American uh, population. If if those quotes were the, the, those kinds of quotes are moments that clarify what the culture of euphemism that you just mentioned is really about, then Donald Trump is 
the apotheosis of it, right? Um, right. There's kind of a parallel there in in how people talk about Trump as as uh, as setting aside the the dog whistle and picking up a train whistle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, and I'm glad that you took this conversation this direction because I've written and and spoken at this point a lot about the fact that I think. Trump could have a cleansing effect on the Republican Party and politics in general by by forcing this aspect of the national psyche of the Republican Party's specific appeal out into the open and making it toxic. And I think that's sort of what you were just getting at. And in general, the feedback I've gotten to to that line of thinking has been positive, but I'd be remiss if I hadn't noticed that the pushback I get or the expressions of doubt uh, I get come over overwhelmingly from women and people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm curious why you think that is, is it an most an expression of concern that he might win the presidency or is, is it having him center stage on TV all the time, leading millions of people, even if it's only for a period of months before he loses and then uh, um, fades into the twilight is that a problem? And, and if that's a problem, then then help me understand the nature of that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that uh, having this out in the public and making it kind of more uh, forbidden is going to to change it. As a matter of fact, I think that part of the reasons why – one of the reasons why it's so virulent now is precisely because people feel that they have been victimized by their inability to – express those things publicly, express those kinds of ideas uh, publicly. Now, in addition to that, I think that uh, the scary precedent, as you know, you're well familiar with, is that people thought that the kind of outlandish conservatism of uh, Barry Goldwater uh, would never uh, go anywhere after 1964. Uh, but we mark that as the kind of turning point with the uh, conservative ascension. Uh, and so I don't know what Trump represents. I know I'm probably more uh, frightened by what comes after him than his campaign in particular. I think his campaign is particular is plenty frightful um, in its own right. Weep for yourself, my man. You'll never be what is in your heart. Weep, little lion man. You're not as brave as you were at the start. Rake yourself and rake yourself. Take all the courage you have. Wasted on fixing all the problems that you made in your own head But it was not your fault but mine And it was your heart on the line I really fucked it up this time Didn't I, my dear? This strategy that's being played out by the Republicans The strategy of activating and, and trying to increase Republican turnout among the white racist base that Donald Trump is speaking to so well is not a new strategy. Lee Atwater back in, in, I think it was 1980. Yeah, it was 1981. Now the Southern strategy was started in the late sixties, early seventies by Richard Nixon. Let's, let's reach out to the white racist voters that Lyndon Johnson kicked to the curb in 65, 66, 67 with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, etc. So let's reach out to those people, the Southern strategy. And Atwater updated it for the Reagan Revolution. And this is Lee Atwater talking to a group of Republican activists and talking about how 
he was going to use race without using words that sound racist. And he points out that, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, you could use the N-word. And then in the 60s and 70s, you could say forced busing, and it meant the same thing. People knew you were talking about race. White bigots in the South, in particular, knew you were talking about race, although they're not limited to the South. And then, and then you know, as we came into the Reagan era, Reagan was going to be talking about cutting things like welfare. Find that welfare queen and cut her off. And, and he said, you know, we know. Cutting, cutting, cutting government programs that help people is going to hurt black people more than white people because they're more dependent on, on government programs because of 400 years of slavery and institutional racism. And so all the white racists will get it immediately, even if the news reporters don't. And nobody can accuse us of being racist if we simply say we're going to cut this, we're going to cut that. But every, but the, the racists, they know exactly what we're talking about. Here is Lee Atwater uh, laying out his strategy. I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician by political science. Or, no, as a psychologist, which I'm not, is, is how abstract you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out and... Yeah, now you want to quote me. This is how, how abstract you handle the race thing. You got that? Okay, so you start out. You start out in 1954 by saying, by 1968, you can't say that hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes. And all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. You got that? These are all totally economic things, but the byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. So he's talking about making racism an abstraction so that the Republicans cannot be called out on it. He continues. You start out in 1954 by saying... Oh, hang on just By 1968, you can't say... Here's where it continues. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that we're, we're doing the way we And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that we're, we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because I'm obviously sitting around saying... Uh, in, in other words, let me let me just... Pardon me, I'm, I haven't used this program in a while and I hit the wrong button. But, you know, basically what he's saying is we want to do away with the racial problem. In other words, we Republicans want to be able to be racists without talking like George Wallace. Right. So but we want Wallace's voters. We want those Dixiecrats. We want those white racists in the South. If we want to cut taxes, we want. To so so this is where he continues. Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing, uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than. You know. There you go. Hell of a lot more abstract than N word. N word. Right. This. This. And you know, I mean, he's just like saying, okay, this. This is it. And of course, you know what he was trying to avoid was. This. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. George Wallace. 
and it was just a few years earlier, right? Uh, so th- this 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 is what we are seeing here now, and uh, I, I just I'm horrified by it. I don't know how to say it beyond that. I really love this country. It's really very nice. You don't have to remind me. I know it's paradise. Notwithstanding its goodness and chances to advance. It hurts me to see so much bigotry and racial intolerance. The military service. Even the police. City Hall is office. Straight to the Hall of Justice. No money dealing in. The bank money redlining. If somehow you get money. Did you read the, the Kevin Williamson article that just ran in the National Review about... I did. I thought that was a really interesting kind of uh, thing to read in the context of this. Kevin Williamson, a writer for the National Review, wrote a very long essay basically telling white conservatives who have any sympathy for uh, Trump followers as people who have been left behind by globalization and are harmed by low-skilled immigration, to to stop being weenies and stop coddling those people. They are mainly just victims of their own dependency. Basically— Drug abuse. right. Right. I mean, basically repurposing arguments that have been used for decades and decades to stigmatize minorities— who are uh, um, on on welfare or in poverty and 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 casting them directly onto the white working class. So I think that you know Trump has facilitated the airing of a particular kind of American id, uh, and one of the things that scares me the most uh, was that time a uh, couple of weeks back when a protester jumped over the barricade and ran toward him. Uh, and I was terrified that someone would do something to harm him uh, because he's leading a mass of people who already feel uh, a great deal of grievance and have uh, subscribed to this uh, kind of cult of victimhood almost that people, <laughs> interestingly enough, conservatives used to use against African-Americans back in the 80s and 90s. And the last thing you want is for those people to feel that the person who speaks on their behalf has been harmed. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is that from the opposite perspective is looking at uh, what Kevin Williamson was saying in that article uh, in which, you know, I think I pointed out in my piece that there are actual tangible grievances that have affected people uh, in this country. And Trump is uh, siphoning those grievances off into uh, xenophobia and nativism and those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, Williamson takes the opposite tack, basically saying that nothing has happened to these people. And. Anything that has happened has been their own fault, uh, which, you know, at least has the virtue of intellectual consistency uh, because people have been making these arguments about poor black and brown right. people for decades. Right. That's um, You anticipated mm-hmm. exactly where I was going. I took Williamson to be deracing the Mitt Romney 47 percent critique uh, that hurt hurt the party so badly in, in 2012, and I kind of admired him for it. But I also think that going down that road for the Republican Party – to embrace this idea that not only are poor minorities moochers, but so are poor white people. And a pox on, on everyone's house, if you're poor, would be completely mm-hmm. untenable. And this was the first time I, I, I started to think that maybe Trumpism won't be the thing that finally breaks the Republican Party from its old way of doing politics. But maybe it's 
the thing that gets the Republican Party to be the party of Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, he's he's certainly helping. Uh, Kevin Williamson is certainly helping that process along. And uh, in other places, I think people would think that it was bizarre uh, in the first place that, you know, a factory worker who has just been laid off and the CEO who, uh, you know, makes 500 times his salary who just laid him off vote for the same presidential candidates. <laughs> and so— <laughs> Um, you know, that might seem to be bizarre in its own right. And I think but there is the potential for this kind of decoupling of, you know, of this cross-class alliance. Now, one of the other things I thought that was interesting about Williamson's piece, which I should say is very well written, uh, but no, although not necessarily correct. <laughs> uh, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the more notable points there is that he says that people suffer from a lack of motivation uh, and that they haven't moved, uh, that people who are in these forgotten burgs and uh, overlooked towns should simply go somewhere else. Now, where exactly those people should go is subject to question. Uh, and he doesn't say. He doesn't say where these people it's, should go it's to the, find it's, better opportunity. And, and, I mean, he does make one sort of illusion. Like, if, if, you're, if, mm-hmm. you're, if your factory town it has collapsed because the, uh, you know, the, what you produce is no longer marketable then pick up and go to the gas fields in in some neighboring state in Pennsylvania uh, in Pennsylvania yeah. um, the problem is that this is not simply a matter of mobility because one we we've tried this mm-hmm. and that was called the great migration of right. African Americans uh, and we have lots of urban poverty among these people who are in urban environments precisely because they or their uh, parents or grandparents came to those places seeking industrial opportunities, industrial work. Uh, and, you know, also, it's a very shocking argument uh, that he makes when he says that nothing has happened to these people, whereas six million people were foreclosed uh, on during the housing crisis. Uh, the fact that we are no longer suffering through a foreclosure crisis doesn't mean that the effects of that uh, recession have simply vanished. For me, if I wanted to leave Washington, D.C., I'm, I'm fortunate in that I own a small condo. If I wanted to leave D.C., I could sell that condo and apply the money into transportation costs to, to get out and then maybe purchase something less expensive in a less expensive part mm-hmm. of the country. Mm-hmm. But but people in Flint, their homes are now probably worth nothing. And and mm-hmm. pe- just like in old factory towns where, where the factories have closed down, those people don't have any assets if they ever did. And I just feel like American history is – it's not just the Great Migration. It's replete with – with Go story. west, young man. Exactly, right. <laughs> and, and and those those episodes might get lionized in popular culture, but I mean the the truth of them was horrifying. I mean, right? Uh, I, yeah, the, the the majority of homesteaders actually lost their property, even they were given property. It was too difficult for them to uh, hold on to in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. I just wonder if Kevin Williamson ever played the Oregon Trail and remembers all the times he died of dysentery on the way right. on the way west. Um, there's, there's one other thing that I want to I want to add to this, which is that I think that Williamson's piece is just a logical conclusion, a logical extension of a trend that we've seen for a really long time, uh, and it reminded me of something that uh, the poet Amy Césaire said about Adolf Hitler. He said that uh, you know Hitler's imperialism, the, you know, the problem in Europe was not uh, Hitler's imperialism, but that he had practiced imperialism against other Europeans uh, because the, the behaviors that uh, he exhibited uh, in Europe had been completely permissible in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America and uh, Asia. 
uh, in these places where Europe had colonized. And so I think in some ways it's a kind of chickens coming home to roost argument because those uh, kind of points that we've seen in which people can be uh, you know, used as the uh, scapegoat for any social problem. We're very familiar with seeing this happen with black and brown communities. Uh, in some ways, it was only a matter of time before this kind of democracy of blame found its way back to the white working class, which had been largely exempted from it, from that kind of thinking for the better part of a century. spent a little bit of, uh, we're talking about uh, documents of U.S. involvement uh, in the Argentinian dirty wars in the early 70s, and I guess this is a report of um, Radovan uh, Karadzic, Karadzic um, being uh, sentenced to 40 years in jail for being one of the chief ar- architect of atrocities during the um, Balkan Wars in the early 90s. Should mention, and I think we may have touched on this yesterday, but it's worth uh, r- discussing uh, more, uh, slightly more extensively. Uh, Dan Baum in Harper's Magazine reports that he was writing a book in the mid-90s on the uh, drug war, or drug prohibition. And he interviewed John Ehrlichman, who was the domestic policy chief for President Richard Nixon. Uh, He ultimately went to prison as a um, fallout from uh, Watergate. And he uh, reportedly was pretty bitter about that, but I, this would be a sort of a weird thing to, um, to accuse somebody of if it wasn't true. Nixon never really talked to him after that. Uh, Ehrlichman was bitter about how he was treated after that. He was sort of thrown to the curb, but, uh, Baum asked him, uh, about the drug war that Nixon basically launched <clears throat> and uh, Ehrlichman he uh, Baum writes uh, I started to ask Ehrlichman a series of earnest uh, wonky questions that he impatiently waved away quote you want to know what this was really all about he asked with a bluntness of a man who after public disgrace in a stretch of federal prison had little left to pre- protect the N- Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to either be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. 
I mean, he may have been bitter enough to admit that, but he did say we did. You know, it's not like, um, that would have been a weird sort of um, hill to make your stand on if you were going to lie about something in the Nixon administration. Hello, this is Mitt Romney. Right. Don't exactly. vote for Donald Trump. His racism is so atypical for our party. Exactly. Exactly. Has no historical antecedents whatsoever. Whoa, black guy in the room. Now, excuse me. We Who certainly know, um, we certainly know from a sort of de facto standpoint that that's what this uh, was about, particularly in terms of black people. Um, but it is interesting to hear one of the, uh, the, basically the domestic policy chief of the Nixon administration concede. I don't even think conceding is the right word for this. Uh, adamantly expressing the idea that, yeah, this was not, this wasn't a byproduct. This wasn't a bug. This was, in fact, the feature of this policy was uh, specifically to um, to not just <clears throat> and vilify, which it did, but to literally uh, undercut their uh, political strength by attacking the structure of their social organizations. Um, so... But, you know, again, like uh, Michael, uh, the point made uh, via Mitt Romney, like it's so hard to, to just where did all this Trump, where did all this racism, where did all this bigotry come from in the Republic? Complete just aberration. Completely shocking. It's so weird. So strange. I think- I, I, I'm just scratching my head. Who are these Trump voters that just showed up? <laughs> And frankly, where did that policy come from? I mean, everybody could go back and read about the COINTEL program and, right. and the FBI in the 60s. I mean, to whatever degree you want to take it. I mean, there's disputes about specific incidents, I, but there, it was a conscious strategy of the FBI under Hoover to go inside, disrupt, violate the civil liberties of, and I think certainly in some cases probably kill Leaders of the Black Panthers, leaders of the anti-war movement. So even before we got to this, but but that's long but that's different policy. because I actually think like a guy like Hoover is a is a paranoid oh, and yeah. who actually thinks like these are all threats to America. Oh no, that's the policy setup right. I'm getting to. The racial stuff is uh, is probably actually I guess it is specific to Nixon kind of capitalizing on the southern oh, well, southern and, flight. But it would make sense in 1968, right? right? Because this is the first yeah. election you have that's a fallout from the um the civil rights act right and so you have this um this dynamic where you know all of a sudden the lines are drawn differently you know i mean we we've talked about it on this program fdr had to um you know basically trade it off uh black people and um uh in some respects women to get uh things like social security Right. And uh, LBJ basically said, okay, we're no longer going to make that trade anymore. We're going to, you know, we've had 40 years of, of, of living with that stuff. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to, uh, I mean, not 40 years, but I'm saying like, you know, 25 years from that uh, time, we're, we're done now. Um, and, and, and I'm in, by no means saying like it was just LBJ showed up one day and was like, I'm going to do the right thing. I mean, I, and there's obviously a lot more complicated than that, but, um, that was where 
you know, in the, in the playground, you draw that line, like we're on one side, you're on the other. Well, the line just got moved. And so a bunch of people jumped over that line, the Dixiecrats to the Republican party. And and then you saw that same shift too with voters. And it's all in some respects, it's just coming home to roost uh, 30 years later. Right. right? I mean, it wasn't, you didn't start seeing this. And I mean, through Reagan, you started seeing, but Reagan Democrats were just Dixiecrat voters realigning themselves. You know, like the, the Reagan uh, election was considered a realignment. I remember going to college and uh, in 84 and my uh, political science uh, professors were on day one. We're talking about there's been a realignment. And really what that was, was the voters falling in line with a lot of their uh, politicians, particularly like senators and Congress people, and then ultimately we've now seen it where it's governors and state senators, et cetera, falling in line with that move. And so, you know, if it took white people 20 some odd years in the South, racist, to realize like we're in the wrong party because the parties have shifted, you know, you can, if, if that type of move takes so long, you can imagine just sort of like how long it takes to throw off the yoke of like a hundred years worth of slavery. I reckon you know, that 200 the years Democrats are starting to talk about black people like you, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm noticing a pattern here. Well, I'm going to huh? wait and see and have my behavior, yeah. uh, uh, my affiliations uh, align with my behavior. I'm going to give it a little more time. I want to be a hundred percent certain <laughs> that the lines have changed here vis-a-vis black people not being murdered. But if they is, then I'm going to change. 